Welcome to the Freedom City Church podcast, a podcast designed to help your faith thrive. We hope you enjoy today's message. Turn to the person next to you and say, prepare your heart. Prepare your heart. Yo heart. Usually I preach on Palm Sunday because historically today is Palm Sunday. Did you know that? It's the day where Jesus entered Jerusalem as part of a prophetic act, entered Jerusalem, and everyone was expecting a Messiah. So they had these palm leaves that they threw on the ground, and they said, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King. Palm Sunday. It signed, and what Jesus did when he entered Jerusalem on donkey, he signaled the type of kingdom he was bringing through his life, his death, and his resurrection. He was bringing a kingdom of Peace, because typically rulers, conquerors, people who were there to, to set people free, liberate them, would enter on a chariot or like a war horse. Morning, Monty. Everyone say hi, Monty. <laughs> they would enter on a chariot, a great chariot, grand chariot, and they would have the bravado and say, everybody, look at me. I'm here to set you free. Whereas Jesus entered on a donkey in humility. But I don't want to preach on Palm Sunday today. Sorry. Sorry. I want to preach on something else because my heart this week in the lead up to this uh, today, I felt the Holy Spirit lead me in a different direction. And the thing is, it's not too far removed from Palm Sunday. It's actually what happens directly after Jesus enters Jerusalem. So technically, it could have happened on Palm Sunday, you know, like um, time-wise. But this is Palm Sunday, the sequel. This is the next installment. This is the next season. But let's get straight into it. If you have your Bible, I encourage you, pull your Bible out. If you want to look at the screen, that's okay as well. But if you have your Bible, let's go to Matthew 21, verses 10 to 13. Fantastic. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And then we go into the next part. Jesus cleanses the temple. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Imagine if someone walked into this church right now and said, The house of God was meant to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. How would you react First of all, I'd be like, get out. Yeah. I'd be like, we pray. (laughs) We pray. (laughs) We we sing worship songs. Yeah. It's quite confronting, isn't it? But Jesus went straight into the temple and he did this. Ballsy, huge, like something of extreme significance. But the question I want to ask is why did he go straight to the temple because surely if you walk into a city, you go to like the the president's place, you know, the the king's um, palace maybe, or you go to 
the Department of Transport. Like, it's like you, you walk into somewhere of significance and you say, all right, there's going to be people here. This is a place of importance. I will go into this place. What we have to understand about the temple was the temple was the biggest building in Jerusalem. The temple wasn't just a small church on, uh, on the side of the road that we see nowadays. It is the biggest building in Jerusalem. It was the main attraction. It was the Empire State, the Eiffel Tower. People didn't go to the king's palace because the temple was bigger, it was better, and it was the place to be. And it was actually the center of Israel's religious and political power. That's how, you know, we've got the separation of church and state in modern society. That, that didn't exist back in the day. It was the center of religious and political power. So Jesus went there because it was that. But also, the temple was where the presence of God dwelt. Jesus went straight to where the presence of God dwelt. You know, and one of the things we have to understand is this is symbolically, because if you believe that God is big, who believes God's big? Who believes that God fills the whole of creation? I do. This was symbolic, because this was the overlapping of heaven and earth. The presence of God in the temple was that pocket of heaven where, uh, where on earth where God came and dwelt. Yeah, the thing was... God was not contained by a temple. It was not contained by a temple, but the creation of the temple was to represent the creation of the universe. So basically, if you go back to Genesis, how many days was the world created in? Seven. On the seventh day, God rested. The world was... God, the process of creation took seven days. And on every day of creation there was a significant sentence or something that God said. It said, and God said, let there be light. And God said, and God, and basically on seven days, God said seven different things. And when we go and we look at the tabernacle and the temple, even though the temple actually took 46 years to create, it's a long time, there were seven significant days in the process of the creation of the tabernacle and the temple, when God, when the people of God would stop and make a speech or they would say something. So seven days with seven speeches. So why were they doing this? Why were they doing this? Because they were trying to show that even though this is just a building, this is symbolizing that God fills the whole of creation. Even though it's just a building, it wasn't created in seven days exactly, but the process of it is symbolic. And it was so honoring to God, it was so significant that God said, I will come and I will anoint this temple and I will reside within this temple. You know, it is a picture of his omnipresence. Omnipresence means everywhere. God everywhere. So the temple was very significant. It's not like the churches that we see nowadays, where there's a kids' play area at the front, there's a cafe. These are all good things. 
it was symbolic and it actually symbolized and the, there was pictures of Eden in there as well. Pictures of flowers and trees and everything. And it symbolized the Garden of Eden in there as well. So what God was, what the people were trying to do was show that this temple was holy. That the temple was sacred. That the temple was important. It's not just a church you can rock up to grab a free coffee and cruise away from. It's a temple that when you came to it, you needed to come prepared. You needed to come prepared. Because what I am coming to the place where the Lord dwells. Do you think that's significant? Do you think that's big? So what happens is Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem But what we have to understand was when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, Jesus wasn't like, hey, just like, woo, signing autographs on the way past. Jesus was riled up. Jesus was weeping. Why? Because the same people who were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, were going to be the same people who would reject him as their king. The same people would say, we wanted someone who would come and beat the Roman rule, the political rule of the Roman Empire, who had taken over the whole of Judea. They were like, all right, oh, we thought you were coming to like, liberate us so that we could be in charge, so that we could put our own president in, our own king in place. We thought that's what you were doing. But Jesus came not that way. He came to bring a kingdom of peace. So he knew that Israel was going down a destructive path, neglecting the poor, stirring up rebellion against their Roman oppressors. And he also knew that it was going to lead to his death. So it broke his heart that he knew, I am what you need, yet I know you will reject me. Still he went through with it. So he wept. So by this point, Jesus was sad. He was weeping, but he was also riled up. So what's the first thing he does? Is he walks into the temple courts and he drives out the money changers, disrupting the entire sacrificial system. And if you might know this story growing up. He started to flip tables. He started to I'm not going to flip tables. He went in and he saw there's a table there, flipped. You know, who's seen that that who's seen that slap video where he just keeps slapping anyway. He goes and he just flips tables. Just he's like, that is not welcome in the house of the Lord. He flips tables. The first thing he does is he goes in and he stage a prophetic process, uh, protest. Standing in the center of the courtyard, you have to understand, this courtyard is not like one of these English gardens. It's not small. It was huge. The courtyard was the biggest building, the biggest structure in the whole of Jerusalem. So he walks in, and he's standing in this middle, the middle of the courtyard, yelling, shouting. He's saying, this is supposed to be a place of worship, yet you have made it a den of robbers. And he, the prophet, he's, he's quoting Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7, 11, 
where Jeremiah says, Has this house which has been called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. He's given a critique of the Israel leaders. that They are rebellious and corrupt. I don't know if you've ever dwelt on this passage before or you've ever really looked at the significance or or whether you've just said, oh, Jesus was pretty um, pretty hectic. Jesus was stood up for what he wanted, you know. I think we have to realize that there's more to this than meets the eye, more than just someone walking in. You know that there's always like a quirky person who comes into church. You know, I've seen it over the years. It's more than just a quirky person coming into church and interrupting the, the preacher. This was someone. This was the Messiah entering the religious and political order of the world saying that you are corrupt. You need to change. And I'm going to clean the temple. You know, what Jesus did was he drove people out. So even though he went in there, he wasn't just creating chaos. He was actually creating order by removing the chaos that dwelt within the temple. You with me? He wants to hear what else Jesus has done. There's an amazing significance, though, because if we look at the exegesis, it's the process of looking at the scripture in context. The process of exegesis also has application, which comes into our modern lives and saying, well, you're talking about Jesus flipping tables then. What does that actually mean for me now? What does it actually mean? Observation, and we, we move through the steps, and we look at application, the final step. Well, we can look at the parallels and the significance by looking at a few of the, the, the main things within this passage. So first of all, let's, let's look at how the temple impacts and influences our lives now. So Jesus said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming to our world in a new way. And he presented himself as a new kind of priest. But the thing is, Jesus wasn't a priest. He didn't work in the temple but Jesus said that God's presence, his rest, and his rule was filling the world through his life, his death, and resurrection. And he claimed that he would be the true temple. I am the true temple. But then he went on and said, well, the new temple will expand into all of creation. That's when we became many temples. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are many temples. You are a mini temple. You are a mini temple. The church, the individuals, the collective and individuals, after his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come and dwell among his followers so they would become mini temples. It says in salvation, when we receive salvation, the Holy Spirit entered our life. When we receive salvation, the Holy Spirit has entered our lives. When the Spirit of God comes and enters your life, you then become the new temple. You become the temple that Jesus took. He said, no longer will it be this massive temple, this temple that is a building that's made out of brick and stone. 
But the new temple will be me. I am the new temple, but I am also the priest. And then he says, but after my death and resurrection, it is better that I should go that the Spirit could come. And the Spirit comes and enters our lives at the time of salvation. So we are many temples. The Spirit of God used to dwell in a building symbolically. Now He dwells within our lives. He dwells within our hearts. So the church, we are a community of individual mini temples that make up a mini temple. Let's not get too far down that road anyway. But this is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple, not a building, but people. Like Peter says, you are all living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. So through Christ, we are where the presence of God dwells. He has chosen you. Have you thought about that? When God chose to go into the temple that David built, he says, all right, I will enter this temple that you have created. Then he says, but if, if you worship any other God, if you worship any God, I will tear this temple down. But through Jesus, he says, I choose to enter your life because of Jesus. And Jesus has sealed that promise, sealed that covenant. It's not about what we do, but what Jesus has done. That's why there's so much grace and forgiveness in your lives. Because if you had sinned, so yesterday, God would have left the temple in the old covenant. But the New Testament, the new covenant through Jesus, he says, I will stay, not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus did. Come on. It's not about what you do, but it's about what Jesus did. So we are where the presence of God dwells. That's a little bit daunting. I don't know about you, that's a little bit daunting for me when I really think about it. That God has chosen to dwell in my life. But let's get a little bit, let's get a little bit left field here and say, all right, if God, if I'm the temple and Jesus walked into my life right now, what table would he flip? If Jesus came in a donkey, cruised into my life and looked at the state of my heart, state of my temple, what would he flip? What would he clean out? I mean, it's, it's daunting because we cannot hide from God. We cannot run from his presence, his spirit. It talks about in Psalms, it says, Lord, investigate my heart. When was the last time you actually say, God, investigate my heart, flip some tables in my life? I've been doing it a lot recently since I got out of hospital, and it's super, super hard. I'm probably the, get this, I'm probably the most vulnerable and broken I've ever been, but I'm also the most confident in the goodness of God that I've ever been. I'm most vulnerable and broken, but there's this tension where I know that God is good. So would Jesus look at your inner life and say that it is representative of God's majesty and His glory? Or would Jesus start cleaning your temple? You know, I'm talking about preparation for Easter. 
Let's get prepared. Let's get, let's get real here. Because we have to understand that Jesus wasn't flipping tables for the sake of chaos. God is not a God of chaos. He wasn't flipping tables to say, this is messy and just kicking down speakers and, and throwing up rugs and being like, mess it up, everyone. He was actually cleaning the temple to create order where order had been lost. So what he did, he knew the intention of the temple. Therefore, he needed to remove that which had corrupted the temple. He was restoring it. So there are tables. Tables that occupy space within our temples. And what can these be? I just want to say to you, if God comes in and starts flipping tables, starts highlighting things, He's not trying to create chaos. He's not trying to ruin your life. He's trying to restore you to your purpose. Restore you to that which you were created for. To, to maintain and inhabit the presence of God. That's beautiful. That's why at the moment, Meg knows what I'm going through. There's a whole bunch of chaos in my life. Sorry, it's not chaos. It's, there's a whole bunch of craziness which is kind of chaos, just a synonym. But it's like, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in my life. But I'm so excited, even though it hurts sometimes. I'm so excited about what God is restoring me to. Because I want to be a temple, not of corrupt or robbery, corruption or robbery, but I want to be a temple that honors God. Who wants to be a temple that honors God? Who wants to be a person that, the way that they live causes people to see Christ. No matter where you are, and this is the amazing thing about grace. Well, I spoke about Titus last week. The amazing thing about grace is that Jesus knew our heart when he died on the cross. So he's not walking in going, oh my goodness, <laughs> you did that? You think that? There's some people that like, even pastors I meet, they'll tell me stuff. I'm like, what? You think that? How on earth can you think that? You know, it's just like Jesus knew that before. He knew that before he flipped tables. He knew that when he died on the cross. He knew that inherently you were created. In Genesis, what does it say? God finished creating everything and he said it was good. But then he finished creating humanity. And what did he say? It was very good. God knows you. He knows your heart. So he wants to clean the temple out. All right. What are the tables that God is going to flip in our lives? These are just three that I've highlighted today. Complacency, convenience, and compromise. Oh, oh complacency, convenience, and compromise. These are the tables some of the tables that Jesus wanted to flip. And I haven't just made this up, but I have looked at the rest of the passage. First of all, we have the sacrificial animals. Why is, are the sacrificial animals a table that represents complacency, convenience, or compromise? Well, when people went to the temple, they'll travel from far and wide. Three times a year, they'll come for they'll come for a, a, a festival to honor and worship God three times a year. Imagine if you came to church three times a year. 
He just came to church three times a year. And that's the only time he came to church. So you've got plenty of time to prepare, don't you? You have so much time to prepare. But three times a year, you'll come. It says in Deuteronomy 16, verses 16 to 7. I think it's up there. We'll see. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of the weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. So the thing is, it's actually quite difficult. It was quite difficult for people to travel to Jerusalem with a sacrifice. Why? Because the sacrifice, the lamb, if it was injured or found to be in some way unclean, then the worshiper would not have a sacrifice for the festival. So the temple, this is what happened. The temple said, ah, we have a business idea. We have a business idea. People are traveling and they're rocking up and like, oh, my lamb. Oh, it got dirty. Oh, my lamb. It like got free and it broke its leg. I can't use it. All right. We're going to pre-authorize some lambs, some pigeons, some doves, and we're going to sell them to you at an extortionate price. So people were rocking up and looking at the lamb. Oh, no. Lammy. Lammy, you've screwed me over. Why did you run away, Lammy? And they started to buy pre-approved lambs from the temple. But this wasn't as good-natured as you think because vendors, in cooperation with the priests, started to cheat people out by forcing the prices up and causing people to, to buy this at a very high price. Like, as scholars have noted, that a pair of doves that could cost as little as 4p outside the temple would cost as much as 75p in the temple. So a 20 times increase. Imagine, imagine that. And this, this goes into something else. This goes into the oppression of the poor. This goes into corruption. But imagine rocking up and being like, I've traveled so far. I've had, to, I've had to travel with my family for months to get here. My lammy got dirty. And now you're telling me the only way that I can offer my sacrifice to God is to pay 20 times the price of what I got this lamb for. Is that, does that sound like corruption to you? That sounds like corruption to me. It was rough. <laughs> Sorry, it was rife. The thing is, this is the difference though. Jesus was not just angry at those who sold these animals. He was angry at the people who bought the animals as well. Let me explain. What this goes into is a kindredness in spirit. Because what was this? This was convenient worship. Convenient worship. What was supposed to be a pilgrimage to worship and honor God soon submitted to convenience. Instead of bringing my sacrifice as I travel across the desert, tending to it, making sure it was taken care of, protected and unblemished, I did, it became I'll just buy it when I get there. What started off as, this is your sacrifice and worship to God, became, it's like, oh, I don't need to worry about getting there. When I get there, I'll just buy it. It took out all the legwork of worship. 
It took out all the importance of I will tend to my sacrifice. I will tend to my worship. I will protect my worship. And became, it's all right, even if I mess it up, I'll just get one when I get there. I'll just get one when I get there. Instead of protecting our worship throughout the week, tending to our sacrifice, making sure that we live unblemished lives, we have subconsciously turned the church, the collective temple, into a place where we can just buy it when I get there. Worshipping God can become more about convenience and how it serves us than about tending to our lives from the Monday to the Sunday, the Saturday. He's cleaning house. He's not condemning. He's cleaning house. Jesus takes care of our worship every day. And I lived this way for a very long time. And I still, I go in and out of this. I see Sunday as the day when I make my exchange with God. I see Sunday as my day of worship. And the rest of the week, I don't tend to it. I don't tend to the sacrifice. I don't tend to the worship. I don't tend to the gravity of what God has entrusted me. We don't want to be people who worship conveniently. Because what happens is we'll rock up to church expecting to be able to get, 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 when the temple was a place where we worship, 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 when we celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. We are to come to church prepared. Megs can tell you though, on the lots of mornings on the way to church, I'm having to prepare my heart because I'm like, I have terrible attitude. I'll be like, oh, this person just said they can't serve today. Eh. I'll be like, oh my goodness. I can't believe that that this has happened or like, I just don't feel like it today. I'm having to tend to my sacrifice every day because when I rock up, I don't want to feed into this, this idea, this corruption that says that I can just sort myself out when I get to church. Can I say, disclaimer, God will heal you and God will not reject you when you come to church. God will do many things when you come to church. But if we come with our heart prepared, start seeing God do things not on a Sunday. Come on. Let's start seeing God do things on a Tuesday when you're going to buy your coffee. Or Wednesday when you're at home just praying. Or on Thursday when you're watching House Hunters and God says, turn it off. Too much House Hunters, Megs. You know, it's like God wants to make a change in your life. He wants us to prepare our hearts. The second thing is the money. Now, Judea was under the rule of the Romans, and the money in current use was Roman coin. However, the the Jewish law required that every man should pay half a shekel, half a shekel of Jewish coin. But because the currency was Roman, Roman currency, people had to convert their money. So they had money changes at the temple. So what they would do is they would rock up, what did the what did the money changes do then? 
they would put a fee on top of it, a sum. And what does this do? Not only does it do something for you individually, but what it does is it capitulates, it, it consolidates the oppression of the poor. I don't know if, you've, if, you, if we really take that into account. By paying a sum of money and uh, abiding by that constantly, it causes other people to have to pay that same sum of money. And the tax collectors didn't care. They weren't like, oh, you're, you're having a hard time. You don't have to pay it. They're like, no, if you want to worship God, if you want your sacrifice to be acceptable, you have to pay the sum. So the oppression of the poor continued. It, it was called, it's something called an agricultural economy. Back in the day, it was agricultural Chickens, cows, crops, you know. So basically what it was is if someone got rich, it would be at the expense of someone else. Whereas nowadays we're, the, the economy is increasing. Business is increasing, cryptocurrency, whatever there is. Back in the day, if you got rich, it would be at the expense of someone else. So the church, the corruption, the Israelite leaders were getting wealthy at the expense of the poor. And so when we come unprepared with our worship to the temple, unprepared with our half shekel, that to be honest, we could have come through all of Judea on the way, just stopped off on the way here to Judea, to Jerusalem, and gone into another town and been like, oh, can I just change the money here? That was very possible. People were waiting until they got to the temple to change their money. And so they are consolidating corruption. Whereas if we prepare our hearts and we say, I am going there, I will prepare, I will make an exchange for that half shekel into Roman currency, what would happen is people would rock up and they wouldn't have to abide by the system and the corruption. People turned their temp- the temple into cash converters. You know how like you get to cash converters and you're like you're like I'm gonna sell you this Fender Stratocaster, this American-made guitar, worth about two grand, and they're like, sweet, I'll give you two hundred bucks for it. And you're like, but it's worth so much more. And they're like, well, this is all I'm gonna offer it, offer you for it. It's like you come and it's like, hey, can I can I just exchange it? Well, this is how much you have to give up for your worship to be acceptable. What we have to realize is that Jesus wanted people to be prepared, to steward their lives, to steward their finances, to steward their attitudes, their hearts, preparing well, causing them to be able to invest their lives in ways that wouldn't contribute to the oppression of others. We should come to our hearts to God with our hearts prepared, prepared to give, prepared to worship. Not coming, being like, oh, can, if you do this, then I will be able to worship God. If you do this for me, I will worship God. It should be, I'm coming fully prepared to recognize God's goodness. Because what we do impacts those around us. Whether it's coming to church with a poor attitude that impacts others, not honoring God with our finances because we're fearful or 
stuck. Maybe we see Sunday services as a place where God will fix us when the purpose of coming together is to celebrate. So we don't actually come ready to contribute. When church becomes more of a service unto us, we start setting up temples, tables in the temple's court. We start, ah, oh, yeah, the space over there, just I'll get you a pull-up banner in a second. You know, so we start setting up tables in the temple court. So this is why Jesus wants to flip the tables of complacency, convenience, and compromise in our lives. Why? Because he has called you to be a house of prayer. Not a, not a den of thieves, but a house of prayer. The merchants, get this, actually operated in the outer courts of the temple. This was the area where only the Gentiles could come and pray. Only the Gentiles. So the Jewish people could go and pray in silence. But the people, the Gentiles, were surrounded by temples and people selling oxen and sheep and changing money. So it was sweaty. It smelt like feces. It was busy, bustling. It wasn't quiet. This is why Jesus is saying this is a place of robbers. Jesus referred in Isaiah 56, 7, it says, is, not, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? The point was that Isaiah prophesied and Jesus demanded that the temple be a place for all nations to pray. The activity of all who, those who bought and sold in the outer courts made it impossible for any Gentile to seek God and pray. In that uproar of buying and selling and bargaining and auctioneering prayer, was impo- auctioneering prayer was impossible. Those who sought God's presence were being debarred from it from the very people of God's house. When we create a space that doesn't allow people to pray and experience God's presence, we're doing the very thing that God has asked us to do by being temples. We're doing against that. The Lord's invitation to salvation opens up the way for people of every nation to have a personal relationship with God, the Father, and the creator of the world. Now, prayer is a significant part of that relationship. Prayer is communication with God, an activity of our fellowship with Him. And prayer is one of our main ways of worship. God's house is a house of prayer Because now we can approach the Lord's presence through a one-on-one speaking relationship with God. It says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The temple is intended for silence and prayer. But how often do we clutter our temple when God has called us to create a holy space? Can we close our eyes? I want to give you space. I want to give you space right now. Because it would be remiss of me to say all this stuff and then not offer a space for you to pray. So my question to you today, we're going to have just a moment. What in your life is causing you to not be a house of prayer? What is stealing from your prayer? Maybe it's complacency. 
Maybe it's convenience. Maybe it's compromise in your lives. Maybe you live Monday to Saturday and don't even think about God or pray to God. But He waits and He knocks on the door of our hearts. Maybe you've stopped preparing like you used to when you first received salvation. And it's just become easy. Oh, it's fine. It's okay. I'll just get it when I get there. I'll just sort it out when I get there. What tables in your life need to be flipped? God, I pray that you just highlight just one thing in our lives right now. One table. One thing that is stealing from your worship in our lives, our inner life. God, we don't want to be a house of chaos. We want to be a house of prayer. that God's highlighting right now just hold it up in your mind to to God and say God flip this table clear this chaos in Jesus name we flip the table of fear the table of fear that says that we're not good enough that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't sufficient that were too far gone. We flip that table and we say, Lord, you have your way. Or we flip the table of complacency where we've lost passion for your worship. Where we've made church convenient. Lord, we flip that table that leaves us unprepared to come into your house and to worship you. Lord, we flip the table of pride that says, I've got it figured out. I don't need help. No, I'll sort that out later. The table of pride that doesn't let God come and heal. Lord, we pray that you would come into our temple courts and there would be the prayer and the worship rising to you. we just pray today as we leave this place Lord that we would know your goodness we would know your transformation we would know you in our inner life in a way that we've never known you before 
In Jesus' name, we all say, Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Freedom City Podcast. If there is any way that we can help you survive and thrive in your everyday life, we'd love to connect with you. If you'd want to know more about who we are, just head to www.freedomcityfremantle.com. Until next time, take care.